and welcome to the Company Watch On The Spot podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst. Today, we're very much a full house, as I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Adam Stones. Adam will be familiar to regular listeners. He's a data scientist here at Company Watch and has spearheaded our work on the new data sets that have become available during the COVID pandemic. Um, Adam completed a PhD and postdoc in Oxford in theoretical um, chemistry. So uh, (laughs) statistical (laughs) modelling, machine learning and data mining expertise is being put to pretty good use as we're developing new products um, for, for clients to help manage their risk. And we're also joined by Greg Connell, um, again, a name that might be familiar to some of our listeners. Um, Greg's an information professional with over 40 years experience, although you wouldn't be able to tell from looking at him. I think that is, um, I think he must be, um, must be, must be um, exaggerating. Um, He's been in the risk management industry um, in sales, finance, operation and marketing, European FD of Dun & Bradstreet um, in Europe and MD of DNB Island. And that was before he founded Connell Data Infolink Gazette. Um, and Infolink Gazette supply many of the credit reference agencies, data aggregators and credit insurers for, for really kind of nice niche um, data sets. Um, so Greg has got a lot of expertise on, on some of the, the court data in particular, which we'll be talking about today. So welcome, Nick, Adam and Greg. Good morning, Joe. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction, Joe. Thank you. We're recording today's episode on Thursday, the 24th of February, and our key topic today is to examine the impact of the ending of the various government COVID support schemes and what that might mean for businesses as we as we go into 2022 um, and beyond. Adam and I were looking at the COVID timeline that we produced um, at various points in 2020 and, and 2021. And actually, it's incredible to think how many government support schemes were actually put into place in really quite a short period of time. And obviously, the headline grabbers um, were the furlough, the bounce back sea bills, seal bills, loan schemes, and the prevention of predator action through winding up um, petition. But of course, there's also the business rates holiday, VAT cut for hospitality, time to pay schemes, trade credit reinsurance schemes. And I think that now we're starting to really kind of feel the impact of those not being there, those safety nets being being taken away. Um, And and I think really what we'd like to do today is to to start looking at how we're kind of seeing that flowing through into insolvency court actions and and so on and what that might mean. So, Greg, perhaps you could um, give us a bit of an overview about what you're you're seeing in in your court data collection. Yes, it's really only in the last three months or so that we've started to see the emergence of what I'd call near free market insolvency conditions and a, a near free market trend now that we're past the, uh, at the furlough environment. And it, if we look at what's available in the public data, we've seen three months where uh, a company voluntary liquidations have been ahead of pre-pandemic periods by by some remarkable amounts. They're they're averaging around about uh, a 50% increase on the pre-pandemic levels. Now, the the only reason that overall insolvency levels are being pegged back to around about 14% growth on on pre-pandemic levels is because administrations and liquidations are running at about half uh, they're at less than half their, their normal levels. Now, if you were to just look at the London Gazette, you, you wouldn't really get a feel for anything that was overly concerning about a surge in administrations or a surge in compulsory liquidations. 
because they're only publishing data once the hearing date has been set. So nothing appears in the Gazette. But we, we've been delving into what's happening in the, the high court. That There we are starting to see some, uh, some worrying trends. So if you think about winding up petition applications, winding up petition applications, they're filed in the high court, sometimes much more than a month before they're published in the Gazette. And winding up petitions, they're only advertised in the Gazette when, when that hearing date has been set. So they're, they're kind of like a leading indicator uh, for compulsory liquidations. And the, uh, the, the kind of figures we're looking at at the moment, if you, if you look at what was published on the insolvency service site, there were 48 compulsory liquidations in December 2021. But there were 147 wind-up petition applications. That's not with hearing set. Uh, and based on February month-to-date figures, I think the number of winding-up petition applications are going to be higher uh, this month. Now, people won't have seen those if they're only looking at the Gazette, but um, they, the, the trend is emerging. Now, What's surprising me is I didn't expect to see this trend to emerge until after the landlord uh, enforcement restrictions were removed. But we're seeing what I would describe as uh, early arrivals. And and, we, and not all of those obviously will, will develop into, um, into something, will they, Greg? I mean, some of these things kind of get settled and sorted out pre um pre-hearing date but it is very interesting that there's this level of activity that's um that's yeah, so going already yeah the, the some of them will be just to apply additional pressure now that there'd been a drought of hmrc petitions in uh, uh, the last two years but in the last three months we've now seen uh, 27 uh, winding up petition applications, including four petitions against GFG alliance companies. Now, that might just be uh, HMRC trying to pile the pressure on to reach some kind of more favourable settlement, or it could be that they uh, these petitions go all of the way through to uh, a, a hearing and uh, a winding up order against some of these companies. Now, in terms of... Uh, what numbers will result in a compulsory liquidation? We, we don't know yet, but because uh, we, we certainly haven't been researching it for long enough at this stage. But a, a worrying trend on the, uh, the same kind of process where we look at notices of intention to appoint an administrator, these are very similar. Um, they're filed in the High Court between 10 and 20 days before they're published in the Gazette. And again, administrations are only advertised in the Gazette when that appointment has been finalised. So high court filings, that they too are a leading indicator for administrator appointments. And what we've seen so far is that in the fullness of time, 93% of them are actually resulting in formal insolvency procedures. Now, what... What we're also seeing more of now than we've seen of in the past is uh, second and third applications. And, and that um, we, we, we're going to have to lean on Nick a little to find out what's going on there. But uh, 
my original hypothesis was that uh, they either haven't got all of the shareholders, directors, creditors uh, lined up, or perhaps secured charge holders are intervening. But Nick has raised the point that there may well be a capacity issue or an attractiveness issue that uh, uh, insolvency practitioners may not want to take on some of these uh, administrations, which also raises some very interesting questions. Yes, I mean, it's, I mean, it is indeed a really interesting point. I mean, Joe and I have been talking on these podcasts for quite a while um, about what might happen if there was a major surge in uh, in insolvencies as all this began, uh, all the government support began to unwind, and and I've been sort of warning quietly in the background and saying, you know, first of all, there are fewer insolvency practitioners who have fewer staff than there were at the beginning of the pandemic. And certainly um, because there's been a a drought in insolvencies, well, really since 2009, um, you know, the industry is smaller and uh, they can see the trends that we're talking about. And inevitably they're going to be looking at these uh, situations and saying, um, you know, unless there's a pro- there's a, a profile raising issue attraction to a case, if it's going to be unduly difficult, and they're not going to get particularly well paid for it, I think there's a fair chance that some of these cases are hunting around the market looking for a home, and and that is a really worrying trend from the point of view of um, creditors, because as we were debating before we started recording, you know. Are we going to see a trend where there are insolvencies looking for a home and nowhere to go? And then yeah. what does, what's the implication of that? I mean, I think we were talking about, Greg, one of the other that's actually brought up is the um, the first and the final gazette notices. So these kind of strike-offs that are happening without any kind of formal procedure. You know, is that going to drive people more into that process, which clearly is not the right thing to do? If there are liabilities, it has to go through a formal formal process. Yeah, you see, you see the other the other problem is again. I've been you know, signalling for a while. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're talking, Greg, about a, um, a not a surge, but a um, uh, a slight swell in the sea of um, of winding ups. Um, what is the capacity constraint going to be at the official receiver? Because <clears throat> you know, it's always been a problem that ca- cases disappear into the official receiver. Uh, you know, with, with all due respect, it's a, you know it's an institutionalised government department, and it's not proactive and commercial like um, our private sector IPs are. But are we going to see um, cases disappearing in there, and um, creditors being left completely in the dark and and out of pocket um, in terms of any sort of recovery at all, as a result of a, an inability of the of the OR to cope? Uh, yeah, so with the, the trends showing that we're likely to get to somewhere like 245 um, uh, compulsory liquidations a month, we're going to be right back at 2019 levels, with demand potentially there for uh, uh, compulsory liquidations of 30, 40, 50% more than that. At the same time, we're seeing uh, the leading indicators of the notices of appointment of administrator. Um, moving into double-digit growth, 
uh, we see the, the potential, the, the, the spectra of the looming spectra of, of, of two potential uh, uh, insolvency uh, problems. One is we end up with a new breed of zombie company. In the past, we've talked about zombies being companies where their interest, tax depreciation and amortization barely cover their interest payments. And of course, there'd be more of those with interest rates rising. Uh, but then there's the possibility of uh, uh, companies that have got nowhere to go. They won't make false declarations or the directors uh, are uh, too compliant to make false declarations and go through the strike-off process, but um, they can't find an, uh, a, a, an administrator or an um, insolvency practitioner who will take on either an administration or, or a CVL. And the, then the, the other possibility is, which is equally undesirable, is that we end up with insolvencies leaking through the strike-off process. Now, we, we looked at, at some information that Companies House are going to release to the Gazette. And I believe that there are going to be 16,000 first strike-off notices and another 12,000 final notices published this week. And I, I'd be amazed if there aren't successful BEBL applicants, bearing in mind there were 1.6 million successful mm. BEBL applicants. I'd be amazed if there aren't applicants that have been making false liability declarations uh, to try and dissolve their companies through the strike-off process and avoid the scrutiny of a, um, uh, an insolvency practitioner. Or um, they see no other alternative um, because they, 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 they can't see another avenue open to them. You can only engage with an insolvency practitioner if you can afford to pay the insolvency practitioner something. Yep. And what's interesting, I think, about the, some of the, like the data availability, and that's something that, that we've discussed quite a lot here, is, you know, there's, there's no, it's very difficult to find a list of the, well, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't well, exist, the list one. of, of no, bounce back loans. We don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> the British Business Bank has it, it, but they yeah. haven't disclosed it. So that's again, right. there is this issue of not being able to link up the companies that have got these bounce back loans to yeah, the, the public that's records. Right. I mean, it's always difficult even when you do have the list actually to do that linking, you know, because unless you have a company registration number that you can really rely upon, yeah, you have to undertake some, some sort of matching process. And we have we have been doing that. But you're absolutely right. There's no list for the, the, the bounce back loans. We can't find anything for the, the future fund. Mm. We do have uh, C bills and CL bills, but Greg and I have just been discussing that we seem to be missing quite a lot of those uh, between the numbers from the Treasury and the numbers that we're seeing in the, the, the disclosures for various reasons. Yeah. So, yeah. So, again, there's a, there's a data problem. So, kind of looking at that leakage um, problem, potentially, it's going to be quite hard, potentially, to keep on top of of, of those companies that are doing this and, and should really have some more investigation. Certainly to do any systematic analysis, I think that's sort of out of the yeah. window unless you actually have a list. But, you know, I think the bottom line here is that, you know, I think all our listeners have to recognise, you know, whether they're worried about supply chain uh, integrity or whether they're worried about um, credit risk, they need to be aware of the fact that there is this information gap. Mm. And, and that is um, at, at the risk of plugging you, Greg. This is where the sort of data that you're extracting becomes absolutely vital because you, you, you have to remember not only is, is the winding up petition application a really key moment, in terms of, of risk management, of course, but the 
you know, the, the, the other topic you've covered, the intention to appoint administrators, um, uh, imposes all sorts of restrictions on the ability of creditors to take any action at all. Yeah. And, and, and that in the period running up to when, if the company then goes into administration, the continuation of supply legislation that came in last year is going to force them to continue to trade with the company, whereas they might have been able to take action if only they knew what was uh, uh, what was going on. So, I mean, it, it is it is a really worrying thing for credit managers and supply chain managers. Yeah, particularly when there are 1.6 billion of these successful applicants. It, it, it strikes me as very short-sighted that the government hasn't allowed for public visibility, scrutiny of, of, of Beeble's loans. And it, it, it's short-sighted in two ways. First of all, it could be to the advantage of the successful Beeble applicant, because all of them are uh, being credit scored. The credit reference agencies would routinely be providing credit recommendations, credit scores. Uh, what do uh, credit scoring algorithms use? They use debt and gearing ratios. And when those debt and gearing ratios exceed certain thresholds, credit scores fall, credit recommendations fall in, in, in line with the, the fall in the score. And if they fall below a certain threshold, then the credit score is wiped. Uh, the uh, company will be given no credit recommendation at all. Now, those thresholds, they were all set on the basis of normal commercial uh, arrangements where uh, it's expected the small business would have been securing finance at seven or eight percent over base rate. And then there's a certain limit about the amount of debt that business can sustain. Whereas if we knew that this wasn't at normal commercial terms, that it was at 2.5% and, and not at 8 or 9%, then we would be able to adjust the thresholds and allow more be successful Beeble applicants to get higher credit ratings and better credit scores. Now, we can't really do that because we know that there were half a million unsuccessful Beeble applicants, and they will have presumably uh, arrange their finance at, um, uh, at um, normal commercial rates. And of course, all the while with uh, ever uh, reducing amounts of information on micro entity accounts, we can't really dissect um, what type of commercial arrangement uh, exists behind uh, any debt. Uh, so it's it's very difficult to make any any sort of uh, qualified um, uh, value judgment other than using the standard thresholds that, that have worked for us in the past. Um, and I suppose the second reason why, why I think it's short-sighted is um, of, of those 12,000 uh, 12, final notices that we think are going to be published in this week's Gazette, I can't believe that there won't be Beeble applicants in amongst those that have made false declarations and uh, uh, they've not disclosed their Beeble liability and they're going to leak out through the, uh, uh, the strike-off uh, process and nobody's ever going to be held accountable for that outstanding uh, Beeble loan. 
And of course, there was some um, there was some some moves to try and try and stop that in terms of having director um, responsibility wasn't their neck in and, and, and restoring companies to the index so that directors could be pursued. But of course, you've got to prove wrongdoing, haven't you? On the but, but you've got to prove wrong, the, the directors. You've got to prove wrongdoing, and you've got to have the capacity to pursue the case in the first place. And you know, whilst um, you know, I think you should set aside the fraudulent. Um, you know that the scams and the and the um, the organised crime applications because they're you wouldn't be able to pursue them because first of all you won't be able to find them and, and not to give their real addresses do they no 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 but but of course it's it's it, it's all the others it's the uh, the ones that borrowed um, because they felt they had no alternative and are, are end up going down that route now there is another angle here gosh are there so many angles on on such a such a, what should be such a simple topic of, you know, just release the data and we'd all know. But of course, if they're leaking out through the um, through the strike-off um, route, what's happening at the lender? What's the lender doing? Because the lender is required under the bounce-back loan scheme to, to make um, reasonable efforts, I think for a minimum of 12 months. 12 months, I think. Mm. Um, to recover the debt, um, so uh, before they can trigger the government guarantee. So, what exactly is going on there? That again, we don't know, and I don't suppose um, anybody will tell us. The um, I'm damn sure the British <coughs> Business Bank won't uh, won't want to talk about that. But uh, you know, so there's so many people caught up in this, yeah. and there's so little information that it, it frankly, it's it's a scandal. Yeah, but if we did have the um, uh, the list of the 1.6 million successful applicants, they could just be being monitored. Yeah, uh, the British Business Bank could receive an alert. Uh, there's a first notice on companies that have had. This is a list of companies that have uh, uh, put a first notice in the Gazette. They're obviously intending to go through the dissolution process. Uh, they had a beeble of, and the, the British Business Bank could set the threshold somewhere. Maybe they, maybe they'd set it at the maximum. Maybe they'd ignore ones below five, ten thousand uh, pounds. But there would at least be some transparency on how much repayment evasion is is going to. Take your point, Nick. There's there's out and out fraud. There's very very little can be done about the out and out fraud, uh, but there's a, a great deal that could be done about repayment evasion. And and casting a light on it in itself would be uh, yep. would be a starting point. Yeah, yeah. And I think that 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 point about um, you know the, the the cost of the government and that will be picked up you know in the wider economy. It's not you know we should we should kind of understand how these things are going to impact you know the business environment in um in general um so i think you know we've obviously had quite a, <laughs> quite a wide-ranging um discussion already any any kind of final thoughts before before i think we could go on for hours so i will i will try and bring this um to a head any final thoughts from from greg and then nick i'll come to you in a sec Adam. yeah i think the 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 only other uh big driver uh, of insolvency that we would not spent a lot of time on yet but that's going to be this 7.5 billion of uh, real estate debt um, that where the uh, landlords are going to be in a position to begin enforcing uh, almost immediately from the end of March on the debt that isn't protected and they'll enter a period of arbitration on the protected debt. 
but there are going to be uh, a lot of companies uh, that uh, have uh, real estate debt that goes way beyond the protected period uh, that took out uh, Beebles and Siebels that left them overly debt leveraged that are not yet trading at anything like their pre-pandemic levels uh, <clears throat> that are, are likely to be looking for some kind of uh, insolvent restructuring approach uh, to deal with um, uh, uh, that 7.5 billion of debt. And Nick, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, this is something well, that's close to our hearts in, in, in terms of the land. And of course, in the past, you know, we don't know, there hasn't, we haven't seen any announcement that the, that either the threshold, this £10,000 threshold for winding up petitions will be extended beyond the 31st of March, or that there will be any extension again for that, that prohibition on landlords being able to take action. But our history tells us that, you know, in the past, it's been at the kind of 11th hour, there's been some, some change. You know, Nick, your point. Well, my, my point is, I, I, I think right now the government has other other things on its mind, and yeah. and and frankly, I think um, uh, to be honest with you, I think the government has washed its hands of the pandemic, so faffing about at the edges with with minor changes, um, I don't think it's very likely. So I, I would discount that. Yes, I think with uh, Putin uh, crossing the Rubicon. And uh, the implications of a, um, a, a war in uh, Europe and the wider economic uh, impact of, of, of a war in Europe, whether it's the impact of price rises on uh, fuel or uh, price rises on wheat, uh, there are going to be so many knock-on effects to the economy um, uh, effects that might end up dwarfing the impact of um, uh, uh, Siebel's uh, debt and uh, 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 rent arrears of 7.5 billion. Yes, never, never, never mind the um, frantic um, distraction of trying to trying to find a Russian oligarch um, in in the UK that um, that isn't a Tory party donor, so they can sanction them. Well, we'll, well, I think we'll leave that that, that political question another time. I'm not um, that. I was going to say, any final, any uh, final thoughts? Just a few things that really struck me uh, during the, the conversation, which was um, just how much of the the conversation and and the, the the government support and so on was geared towards small and medium enterprises. And I just I wondered if you might comment a little bit on the scale of the of the companies. Where do we expect this to hit? Because I was actually looking at some loans data before before I came on and I noticed that the um the COVID commercial credit facility, so the the Bank of England scheme where where big investment grade companies could buy commercial paper. Uh, which at one time had sort of 16 billion outstanding or around that, now only has sort of one and a half billion, and, and most of that is travel companies. So actually, it strikes me that the big boys have really been able to weather this pandemic through their through their their support. I wonder if that's going to play out. It doesn't strike me that that's going to play out in quite the same way at the at the at the other end. Well, I can uh, I can answer you that very simply, Adam, <laughs> because um, I. Um, recently looked at the debt levels and the changes <clears throat> between April 21 and December 21 
in the hospitality trade. And if you look at the big boys with assets over 250K, the debt levels have fallen in that period. Below that level, the debt has doubled. So the answer is, as always, in times of major economic disruption, it's the smaller, more vulnerable, less well-capitalized, less well-run companies that will be the casualties. I, I would agree. Um, uh, it, 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 it will be um, micro entities, small uh, entities that will bear the brunt of this. But at the same time, it's worthwhile remembering that there have been some very, very big, um, big name failures recently. PDR Construction, one of the large yep. independent uh, construction resorts. Yeah, Hull. Yeah, they, they recently went to the war. We've had Midas uh, Group. Mulberry uh, Homes. Mulberry, yeah, Mulberry Homes, Wild Goose Construction with uh, nearly 9 million of unsecured creditors. Um, we've got uh, winding up petitions against the GFG Alliance Company. Yep. Uh, we've got uh, TB Shopping uh, Giant, Ideal Shopping Direct Limited, uh, fishing around trying to find an administrator, um, Studio Retail Group. Yep. Um, and I noticed only recently Norton Aluminium, who were probably yeah. one of the UK's biggest aluminium uh, foundries, uh, they were winding up petition filed against them. So, um, yes, agree. Uh, uh, micro entities and small entities will bear the brunt, uh, but there will be some surprises and some big name companies uh, that will have a, a knock on effect, which will also affect the smaller companies. Yes. And I think, again, that, that kind of comes back to something that we've talked about again and again in these podcasts is, you know, analysing those kind of critical risks in your customer and supply chain base and then finding out as much information as possible. And obviously, we, we you know, really promote the experiment feature that, that we have to kind of try and run those scenarios and, and look at some of the notes and to really, you know, see some of the some of the, the hidden um potential pitfalls that might be coming up that are perhaps in the notes but not necessarily uh, pulled up on the on the financial statements and being able to run scenarios on those um on those potential um problems you know, especially around funding facilities and so on i think is a really um is a but clearly you can't do that for for all of the companies that you're um that you're kind of exposed to but understanding where your critical risk lies is really really important uh well, one other comment i had actually was just on uh, you know, a lot of the conversation today is focused around insolvencies and, and sort of uh, technical procedures of insolvency and so on. But it's also just worth remembering that there'll be a lot of companies out there that that aren't insolvent but have this debt uh, on the on the balance sheet as a result of these support schemes. And just the drag that that's going to have, the change in psychology for many small for many small company directors, and the drag that's going to have on their investment and their growth prospects over the next decade as well. So it, just, to, just to point out that it isn't sort of uh, black and white. You don't just have solvent and insolvent companies. You know, the, sol the solvent companies themselves will also um, face limits as a result of the, the debt that, they, that they've taken. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Interesting point. Good. Well, thank you, Adam. I think you've, you've summed that up very nicely at the end of all those throws together. So it just remains for me to thank you very much, Greg. Adam and Nick for joining me today. Thanks. It was a really interesting conversation. I hope we'll all get the gang back together again in, in due course and, and, and have a look and see see how things did, did pan out later in the year. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.